0: Hi, this is Pastor Robert Blanchard from Lansing First United Methodist Church here in Lansing, Michigan. I just want to take a moment to thank you for checking out our sermon podcast, and if you want to learn more about what we do here at Lansing First, or you want to support us in our mission of going deep, reaching out, and loving Lansing, you can do so online at lansingfirst.org. Thanks. Now, our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers constantly remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters beloved by God, that he has chosen you because our message of the gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction just as you know what kind of persons we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For in spite of persecution, you received the word with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith in God has become known, so that we have no need to speak about it. For the people of those regions report about us what kind of welcome we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Author of life, we thank you for your Word, and we ask that as we reflect upon it this morning, your Spirit would be with us, to transform us in heart and mind and soul. Amen. So as I mentioned last week, we're turning our attention now to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And in doing so, we're taking a leap further back in time from Philippians If you remember, I said that Philippians was the latest surviving letter that we have from Paul. It was written only a few years before his death and near the end of his ministry. This letter to the Thessalonians is likely the earliest surviving letter that we have from Paul, written near the beginning of his missionary trips around the Mediterranean. And although the time between these letters is separated by nearly a decade, we will remember that at the end of Philippians, Paul mentions how they had supported him in his work with the gospel from the beginning of his time in Macedonia, even when he was in Thessalonica. This is because Paul's missionary trip took him through Philippi in the northeast of what was then called Macedonia, what today would be Greece, and then on to the provincial capital of Thessalonica, a bit further to the west. Now, we do actually have an account of Paul's time in Thessalonica as described by the author of Acts. Now, we can't be too sure how factually accurate any of Acts is, particularly in regards to Paul, because it's a later reconstruction of past events. And in Paul's case, it seems that the author of Acts was largely extrapolating from Paul's own letters that we still read today. Nonetheless, there is likely some kernel of truth about the treatment that Paul received in Thessalonica. So let us see what is said in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. After Paul and Silas had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, argued with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, This is the Messiah, Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and with the help of some ruffians in the marketplaces, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. While they were searching for Paul and Silas to bring them out to the assembly, they attacked Jason's house. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some believers before the city authorities, shouting, "'These people, who have been turning the world upside down, have come here also!' and Jason has entertained them as guests. They are all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying that there is another king named Jesus. The people and the city officials were disturbed when they heard this, and after they had taken bail from Jason and the others, they let them go. So what can we take away from that account? First... Paul spent some amount of time in Thessalonica proclaiming the gospel. Second, while there, he attracted a number of followers, including Jews and Gentiles, and specifically some of the leading women of the city. Third, there was then a disturbance rising from a conflict with the mainstream followers of Judaism, which led to the, the followers or the leaders of the Jesus following movement. Being imprisoned and charged with disrupting the life of the city. So, whatever the specific facts might be, the truth that is contained in this account is that Paul did visit Thessalonica, he did organize an ecclesia, a community of Jesus followers, and he was eventually forced to leave. This is the situation that prompts Paul to write the letter that we're now reading. Paul, along with its comrades, Timothy and Silvanus, who's called Silas in Acts, have been away from Thessalonica for some time, and so they want to check up on the Thessalonians to see how they're doing. They decide to send Timothy back to investigate, and now this letter is being written by Paul after receiving Timothy's report. In this opening chapter, we see That the Thessalonian Ecclesia continues to be harassed by the legal authorities, and so Paul is writing to encourage them for their steadfastness in the faith. Specifically, Paul hypes them up for how the seeds of their faith have borne fruit. On the one hand, this fruit is evidenced by their willingness to suffer for their beliefs and on the other hand, this fruit is evidenced by how far and wide their reputation has spread. Paul says, The word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith in God has become known, so that we have no need to speak about it. In other words, Paul is saying that their faith is known Everywhere in Greece and across the world, Paul and his companions have no need to talk about the Thessalonians because everywhere they go, their reputation as followers of Christ has already preceded the apostle. But what does Paul mean when he says that their faith in God has, been, has become known? What is it that these Thessalonians are known for? They're known for turning from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son Jesus who will return to rescue us from the coming wrath. And as I think about this reputation, I think of our local churches today. There's something that takes place at annual conference every year, when the conference votes to close congregations that are no longer bearing fruit. Before the vote occurs to formally shut the doors on these congregations, there's something like an obituary read for each congregation One year at annual conference, I was rooming with my uncle who was there as the lay representative of his church. And as he listened to these obituaries, he noticed how many of them emphasized something like, we were known for our fish dinners, or we were known for our steak dinners. And afterwards, when I was talking to him, he said, when it comes time for our church's name to be read, I don't want us to be known for our roast beef dinners. And he's right to ask what we can do to change the way that our churches will be remembered. I've never heard a church's name be read at annual conference, and their message be, "We were known for turning from idols to serve a living and true God." Or, "We were known for suffering for others." in imitation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't mean to make fun of church dinners, because the reality is we substitute all kinds of things when it comes to what we're known for. For some churches, they're known for their pristine sanctuaries, or their brilliant stained-glass windows, or the awesome noise of their organs, or the flashiness of their worship experience. And the list could go on and on. And on their own, each of these things might be useful. Certainly, beautiful architecture, art, and liturgies can help point us toward the beauty of God and community meals allow us to share in fellowship with one another. But none of these things on their own should be what the church is known for. So this is the question that I want us to think about. And it's one that, as a newcomer, I would love to know some answers to. When our neighbors hear the name Lansing First United Methodist Church, What are we known for? Are we even known by most of our neighbors? Or are we just one of the many churches that dot people's landscapes as they go about their lives? And again, I'm not saying this to pick on us. I'm saying this because it's a question that every church needs to ask itself constantly. What are we known for? Are we known for the word of the Lord sounding forth from our community? Are we known as imitators of Christ? Are we an example to all the believers in Lansing and Michigan? If so, then how do we continue to grow in positive directions? And if not, then what needs to change? There is a lot of anxiety in the contemporary church, about shrinking numbers and declining relevance. But I really don't think the answer is as complicated as we make it sometimes. Is Jesus Christ at the center of everything we do? Are we spending time growing in God's word so that we can be better equipped to share the good news with others? Are we embodying the change that God has worked in our hearts so that whenever someone interacts with us, it's as if they are encountering Christ himself? If we can say yes to these questions, that is all that matters. Worship styles come and go. Buildings come and go. But if Christ is the focus through which everything else is viewed, then we already have everything that we need. We don't need a faith that is trendy. We need a faith that is authentic. If an authentic faith could sustain the early church in Thessalonica and Philippi and all across the ancient world, then we should trust that it will do the same For us. So here is my closing prayer for us. When our neighbors are asked what we are known for, let us be known for serving a true and living God. Let us be known for having the word of the Lord sound forth from our community. Let us be known for being the hands and feet of Christ as we suffer for the sake of others. Amen. And now would you please join me in our prayer of dedication. Lord, you know the prayer that we bring to you this morning, and still we ask that you would give us a faith like your saints in Thessalonica. Let your word sound through us Let your love be in our hearts. Let your justice be in our hands. Let the whole world know exactly to whom we belong. Amen.